whenever anyone, world leader, has even hinted in the past that they want to start trading oil and another currency, their life expectancy is about three months. That that's fine if you go bullying around people like uh, Syria or you know some smaller country like that. Well, the United States can't go in to China like they did with Iraq and just clean house in a week or two and say, okay, we're done. You're back on the dollar. All of a sudden, they met their match. It's a lot easier for the world to transition from the dollar. But when a competitor comes up, it's gonna that transition is going to be a lot easier because finally there's players in the game that the U.S. just can't bully around. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at stboyer.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Today I'm excited to have first-time guest, Mr. George Gammon. He's an educator, an entrepreneur, an investor, and today he's joining us on Rethinking a Dollar to share his thoughts on the global economy as well as where he sees things going in the future as we're entering into a new decade of uncertainty. So George Gammon, welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking time to sit down with us. Definitely looking forward to finding out uh, what's going on in your world and finding out more about you and your thoughts on what's going on here. And so before we dive any further, uh, give us a little bit of as to who George Gammon is and where, you, where and how you've arrived at this point in your career. Okay. I was an entrepreneur for many years and I retired in 2012. When I retired, I had a, a little bit of savings there that I needed to put to work. So I started to study macro. And when I started to study macro, I came across real estate. So in 2012, I pretty much went all in in real estate. I was buying rental properties, fixing them up, uh, either selling them or keeping them in a rental portfolio. I learned that game. And as an entrepreneur, I made a lot of money outside of the United States. So when I learned the real estate game in the U.S. and started to understand a little bit more about macro and understand how fragile the U.S. economy is because of all the debt, I thought, well, maybe it's a good idea to diversify my portfolio and start investing overseas in addition to the United States. So since 2014, I've invested outside of the United States as well as in, I've got a portfolio, it's kind of 50-50. And currently I'm investing in real estate in Medellin, Colombia. And that's where I am right now. We've got a few projects going on. At the beginning of this year, we did a TV show down here that I produced. It was called Vida and Remodelacion which was on a local channel in Medellin. It was just your typical remodeling show. And I was the producer, the executive producer, and I was in the show. So I had a staff. We did one season of that. And so I had some great editors and some great uh, camera people. And when we got done with the first season, I thought, boy, what am I going to do with all these great people? So I said, well, I'll just start a YouTube channel. And that was about three and a half months ago. The first few videos, as you can imagine, were just terrible, and we were trying to figure out how to edit and do all these things. And initially, they're real estate videos because I thought no one would want to watch a video on macro. I mean, who on earth in their right mind, other than me and you, would want to watch a video like that? But but I that's what I like talking about more than real estate. So I did a couple of videos. Those took off, oddly enough, and so I just kept doing them and doing them. 
and now the channel has over 18,000 subscribers and it's just growing really quick. So just having a, having a great time. Uh, that's good to hear, my friend. It's good to hear. So I'm glad that you're out here spreading the good news and also giving people a worldview perspective. And so as I mentioned prior to going live about me having a little bit of a background with some travels and whatnot. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on how people receive this type particular message uh, in, your, in your area there. But before we get into that, I'm curious to find out, uh, we're approaching the end of 2019 and entering into a new decade. Uh, yeah. What are some things that concerns George Gammon at this point? Number one, the debt the sovereign debt, the state debt, and the consumer debt. It's at almost every single metric that you look at is at all-time highs. And if you look at interest rates, they're highly cyclical. You can look at a chart, just very quick Google search, and that takes you back to interest rates in the United States, even going back to the 1700s. And you can see that these cycles go in 20 to 30 year periods. Well, currently, we're in a down cycle where interest rates have been going down since 1981. So almost 40, we're 10 years long in the tooth with this interest rate down cycle. So with all this debt, not only in the United States, but in the world, I mean, we've got 17 trillion in negative yielding interest rates. And, and, and keep in mind with the duration risk on bonds, that means that the lower the interest rate with the same amount of change, the more money, the value, or the, the more the value of that bond goes down. In other words, if you've got a bond that's yielding 1% and another bond that's yielding 5%, if interest rates go up by 1%, you're gonna lose a lot more money on the bond that's 1% than the bond that's 5%. So how does that play out when we've got 17 trillion in negative yielding debt. And so when you look at the debt and then you look at the fact that we are 10 years long into the tooth with a interest rate cycle that most likely, once it starts going up, will go up for the next 20 to 30 years. How does that play out when the sovereign debt is at all time highs, state debt all time highs and consumer debt at all time highs? Oh, interesting. So you're painting a very dark picture, my friend. So we're getting off to a, I'm not sure if this or not, but it's, it's real, it's real and it's what's going on. So as a, as a result of all that debt, it's denominated in, and it's denominated and the derivative of all that debt happens to be our national currency. And so yeah. Federal Reserve note is the world reserve currency at this current, current moment. And it's one of the things where the paint, the picture you painted is very unpleasant because all those digital pieces of paper and, and not and digits and people's accounts show that, you know, they can be wealthy in a sense. But then again, with all this stuff happening on the back end, our government and the central banks are going to continue to do more of the same. So when it comes to reserve status of the current Federal Reserve note, what are your thoughts on that? Short and long term. Well, short term, meaning like between now and the next five years, I think the dollar is the only game in town. After that, though, I, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, once we get, especially in the 10-year point, with what's going on with Russia and what's going on with China, or really most countries, you know, they have to go through our SWIFT payment system. So that's how we can bully all these other countries, because if they don't play ball, well, then we just shut down. You know, they can't wire money through New York, and they're, they're high and dry. 
So it gives us massive amounts of leverage. But if you're a China or a Russia, you're looking at that going, what are we doing here? Why are we giving the United States this much power? So why don't we set up our own SWIFT payment system, which is, of course, what they're doing, so we can get around the dollar. Additionally, if they start trading uh, oil in uh, other currencies, so meaning they're getting rid of that petrodollar, you've got trillions and trillions of dollars that are outside of the United States in euro dollars because of the petrodollar, because of all these things. So if that starts to go away, it, meaning the petrodollar and the uh, reserve currency starts to decline because all of these other countries are trying to do business in something outside the dollar, then all those dollars keep are come flooding back into the United States. And as we know, if you have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods and services or a lesser amount of goods and services, that's just gonna inflate the currency into, into to nothing. And to your point, that's where the, the release valve for all that debt is the currency because the only way that you get rid of that debt is just through default or a devaluation of the, of the, of the local currency. Yeah, so we are a couple weeks away from 2020. What are your thoughts or what are your, just your, your based upon your opinion and the information you study? How will 22 start and what can we expect in 2020 heading into this new decade? This, this first year, then you factor in a political situation we're also in. Yeah. What are your thoughts and what, what are you keeping an eye on? I think you've got to look at MMT. I think that's the big story right now. So whether we like it or not, MMT in my opinion, is going to become more and more popular, not just with the left, but with the right, because it gives politicians a, a free ticket to buy as, as many votes and to give away as many freebies as they want with, according to them, no downside. And as humans, we have recency bias, right? So we look at what's happened in the last five years or the last 10 years, and we just extrapolate that indefinitely into the future. We haven't had a huge bout, or, or as publicized, in the United States of inflation since the 1970s. And we've printed all this money. So people have been lulled to sleep to think that we can just print money with no negative ramifications. Like we can increase the money supply exponentially and it just won't matter. We won't get inflation because we haven't gotten it. We haven't seen it in the last five years. Therefore, it won't happen in the next 30 years. So what this does is because people are asleep at the wheel with inflation, they think, why not? We printed $4 trillion to bail out the banks. So why don't we just print another $4 trillion to bail out Main Street? At a certain point in time, that game is over. And, I, and if you look at markets, you'll see that the market tends to hurt the most amount of people possible. If you look at the stock market crashes in the NASDAQ that we had in 2009, it was a housing bubble. It waits till all the people get on one side of the boat and then bam, it tips the boat over. And I think that's exactly what's gonna happen with inflation. People are getting on the side of the boat thinking that we're never gonna see inflation again. 
It's something in the past. We've, we've achieved a new paradigm in, in monetary policy. So why, so why worry about that crazy inflation thing? What's impossible? Let's just print the money to pay for all the pensions. Let's do a debt jubilee for all the, the student loans. If we need something, if we need the Green New Deal, if we need new energy, if we need this or that, let's just print the money to do it. We have the power of the printing press. We're not limited by issuing debt any longer. I think that's gonna happen, and I think that's gonna be fine, and I think it's gonna happen exponentially because I think they're gonna try it for, let's say, six months, and nothing's gonna happen. And they say, we did it. We, we, we solved it. We can eradicate poverty. We can cure cancer. We can, we can fix the environment. We can do all these things. Let's just print trillions to buy whatever we need. That's going to happen after a year or two. And then all of a sudden, the inflation genie is going to get out of the bottle. And when it does, all of that money and all of the sins of the past are going to have to be paid. And that's, and I think the catalyst to that is MMT because that's what gets the money from the printing press into the actual economy and gets that velocity going. And that's what creates the inflation. Who said all the sins of the past is going to come back to haunt us. And so the time frame you gave us, you know, two, about two years before MMT takes off or is adopted, utilized, and then we are into that, what, third or fourth year, 2000, 2000 24-ish, where you'll see the revelation or revealing of this inflation if things go according to that time frame? Yeah, and, and, and going on that timeline, you've got to think, okay, well, if we're at the end of an interest rate cycle, and let's say the next five years we start going back up so interest rates normalize, well, now we've got all of this debt the interest rates are normalizing. And keep in mind that the U.S. debt, you know, we're $23 trillion in on-balance sheet right now, off-balance sheet, who knows? It could be $100, $200 trillion off-balance sheet. But, but the debt that they have, the on-balance sheet debt, that's not a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, meaning that, that that debt is an adjustable-rate mortgage. <laughs> and I did a video on this the other day. If you look at the United States – they're the biggest subprime borrower in the history of the world. We have never seen a country that is a bigger debtor nation than the United States, never. So, you, so what happened in 2008? You had the subprime borrowers that took out uh, loans and they couldn't pay them back if interest rates adjust, or if they went up, then they couldn't afford those monthly payments. Well, the United States is the exact same thing. It's just it's gone from the consumer level to now it's at the sovereign level where they're the subprime borrower and they've got a $23 trillion mortgage that is going to have to be rolled over at some point in time. So, and, and, it's, and it's shorter than – it's a lot sooner than later. So I think the maturity on the debt right now is five years. So at that point, going back to your timeline, what happens, because right now the average debt or the average amount of interest that they're paying on the debt is about 2%. So let's say that in five years, that cycle goes back up, interest rates go to five or 6%, and they've got to roll over that 23 trillion, which by that time will probably be 30 trillion because we're running trillion dollar plus deficits. Then how does that play out when they've got to roll over that debt at when the interest rates go up by 
That's going to eat up a lot more of that of the tax receipts that are coming in, and they're just going to have to print more money, which creates more inflation. It's this it's this feedback loop that just gets really ugly really fast. Right, what's interesting about that is that you know we're paying a trillion, it's a little bit over a trillion now, and we're supposed to be an economic expansion according to you know the mainstream narrative, but yet once again they're looking to cut taxes to kind of spur on growth in a sense for the mainstream person's pocket. But yet they're taking right. away from their revenue while increasing the debt. So it's good to say that, you know, as of next year or two, we could look at to maybe double the deficits that what we currently have now. And we're not even in a recession yet, according to Absolutely. their measurements. So we can get to 30 a lot faster than I think a lot of people think. And then the world is watching how the United States government is basically what has weaponized and abuse the privilege of the reserve currency status. So I don't, see, I don't see Russia and China and all the other nations sitting around saying, okay, we'll continue to take these debt instruments and, not, and we'll give you real tangible stuff. So as this shift occurs, what do you see the world, how will the world respond? You mentioned earlier their own payment systems. What would that look like? What are some options, alternatives that might be rolled out in this next five years to counter and to protect themselves as a nation and protect their people? Well, first and foremost, they can just start trading oil in whichever currency they choose. Say it's, it's, it's the Chinese yuan. And if the other country accepts that, or that it's an oil producing nation, then fine, you go ahead and do that. That reduces the demand for dollar. Also, with the SWIFT currency payment system, they'd have to figure out their own method to create that, which I, I think, personally, it'll boil down to a digital currency. I know we haven't talked about that, but I think that governments are going to start to issue their own digital currencies. They're going to make cash illegal, and that's going to make that transition a lot easier. I, I, I don't like it. I think it's the most Orwellian thing that we could possibly um, see in the future, but I think that's the, the direction that's going. So, And also, I want to point out that People say, yeah, but it's never happened in the past, and we've got the biggest military and all these things. But, but let's think that through. Whenever anyone, a, a, a world leader, has even hinted in the past that they want to start trading oil and another currency, their life expectancy is about three months. Now, that, that's fine if you go bullying around people like uh, Syria or you know, some smaller country like that. But what happens when you try to bully China? Well, yeah. all of a sudden, if China wants to say, you know what, that dollar thing in this buying oil, we don't really like that. Well, the United States can't go in to China like they did with Iraq and just clean house in a week or two and say, okay, we're done. You're back on the dollar and we're going to hunt you down, kill you. And, you know, let this be an example to anyone who even implies that they don't want to trade in dollars in the future. They can't do that with China. Right. All of a sudden that they, 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 they've met their match. So I think that now it's a lot easier for the world to transition from the dollar into XYZ currency. And again, it's not there now because there are no competitors for the dollar currently, but when a competitor comes up, it's going to, that transition is going to be a lot easier because finally, there's players in the game that the U.S. just can't bully around.
Thanks for watching this interview. If you're enjoying content like this, feel free to become a part of the RTD community by becoming a member via Patreon. All it takes is a monthly contribution of about $5 a month for more great content such as this. Just scroll down beneath this video here and click the Patreon link and then hit this tab right here to become a member of the team. Looking forward to bringing you more great content. Now, let's get back to this interview. Thanks. Yeah, to watch this, George, you said there's no competitors. I, I would disagree. And, and, and based upon that, the thought that there's no competitors, it looks like all the nations are going backwards towards gold. And so we got Russia, China, everybody accumulating gold. So it looks like from the fiat debt dollar standard, they're looking to go back to their own gold standard as, a, as an insurance hedge against, against the policies and all the things that's happening out east. So I, I assume you probably would agree with that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's what I'd be doing. And, and you can see that, that, that gold, uh, China and Russia, a lot of the central banks now are really net buyers of gold, where for a long time, they're net sellers of gold. But when I talk about the dollar, I talk the dollar as if it's a currency, because I don't see the dollar as money. It's just a, it's just a piece of paper. So when I'm talking about the euro or the yuan, to me, that's not money. That's just currency. Once we start looking at gold and silver, to me, that is money. So I, I've got to make sure that, that when I'm talking, going off on a rant, that I'm, I'm being clear there. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So I, I get you 100%. And so moving into the future, digital currencies, digital whatever, it looks like you know the transition has been on. We had gold or gold and silver as a, as, as a standard. Then we went to back paper. Then we went to solely paper. Then we went to paper and digits. Now we're going straight into digits. So it's been a smooth evolution over the last 100 plus years. And so we're probably at that point now with this next decade, digital, uh, as far as the only option might be the, the case where we're dealt with. And so what type of, what do you look, what does it look like to you? These digital coins or digital coins, are they, are they going to be central bank issue, government issue? Will the Federal yeah. Reserve no longer be important? So it's going to be ratified and all that. Give us a rundown. What do you think? I think that, and this is excluding what happens in the private sector, and hopefully Bitcoin or, or some other coin like that will start uh, gaining traction or they'll have an iteration of it that, that's a lot less cumbersome. So it's not just kind of a, a digital gold, if you will, but it's more, more, of, a, more of, a, of a currency. But going back to the governments, which is what my big concern is, it, I think that it's inevitable that they go to a digital currency, especially the United States. Why is that? Number one, that makes capital controls really easy because if there's no cash and all you have are, are digits, then I, I always call it the financial Berlin Wall, mm -hmm. where the first step of that financial Ber Berlin Wall, in my opinion, was FATCA, because now it makes it almost impossible to get a bank account outside of the United States. If you can't get a bank account, you can't take your money. In essence, that's a, a, a quasi-capital control. But with a digital currency, you could completely shut that down. And once you shut it down, if you've got a way to track where every single currency unit goes, that gives the government an extreme amount of control, not only with taxation, but negative interest rates. Why could they not take interest rates down to negative 10? There would be absolutely nothing to prevent them from doing that if we were cashless. Also, and this goes to my Orwellian point, they could control how you spend your money. Because it, with, with crypto, you know, they could track that. 
So, or with a digital currency, they could track that. So let's say that you get a, a DUI and the nanny state comes in and says, oh, no, shame, shame, shame. We're going we're gonna to make it so you can't buy alcohol for the next five years. With a digital currency, they could do that. It, so because it, it separates your bank account, all those currency units, digital currency units in your bank account, they could just put a block so that can't go to pay for X, Y, Z. And of course, the, uh, the business would have a processing unit there that would be able to read that currency coming from your bank account because it's all traceable. If they said, okay, we want to push, let's say electronic vehicles, which I, I think are great. But if the government came in and said, okay, we're going to limit you to having one gas vehicle and one electric vehicle, done. Digital currency, no problem. They could micromanage the entire, the entire demand side of the economic equation. Interesting. And so one thing you, you referenced a lot of times was just your bank account. And so part of my thought process is that as we're rolled into a solely digital world, there'll be no need for banks in the way that we know them now. So it might more so be your, your app, your government issued app or because banks will be irrelevant in regards to them actually needing to have physical store or physical, you know, uh, buildings because there's no cash. So the whole point of having the physical buildings for the last um, umpteen hundred years was because you were able to go down there and get something that was yours. So now that everything's going to be digital, I, I think the banking model has, will shift definitely to where everything will be done on your phone and a part of the, all the things you described will be tracked through your phone or whatnot. So what are some options? You think it will be solely phones or, or will there still be bank, physical banks or what? What do you think? Well, that's a fantastic point. There, there, the banks will have to exist because the, the government needs a mechanism to increase the money supply. So Under the current system. So fractional reserve we will still be in play in this next decade or, so, or beyond the next decade yeah. in a new monetary system, fractional reserve lending will still be a major part of our monetary system. I don't think they're using fractional reserve right now. Mm, okay, go ahead. The, 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 I, I think, well, let me be clear. I think the system that they're using now is a modified version of fractional reserve. The, and, and on a lot of my videos, uh, you know, I try to simplify things and I just use a little simple economy. And yes, it is true that people would take their savings, they'd put it in the bank, the bank would, you know, leave 10% of that, let's say they'd loan out the next 90%. So you get this multiplier effect. But in essence, the banks are lending what people deposit into the bank. That's, that's the typical model of, of how you know, lending happens. And that was true under the gold standard because the currency was limited. It was limited because it was backed by gold. But nowadays, I think what happens, and this is based on a, a paper I read by the Bank of England in 2014, is the banks don't necessarily operate like that anymore. What I call it, they shoot first and ask questions later, meaning that they create the money they create the loan first and then they go out and say, okay, well, we've got a 10% reserve requirement. How, how do we get the money? So there is, in essence, there is no limit on the amount of money that they can just create out of thin air. So you say, well, why do banks want deposits? Because it's just a cheaper way of, of meeting that reserve requirement than by going out into the repo market. 
or by going into, you know, and, and borrowing it from another bank because your customers are giving you your reserve requirements almost free because they're, you know, you're not paying them any interest. So it's just a really cheap way for them to meet that reserve requirement. But what it does is it's like fractional reserve banking on steroids because since they're, they're creating the money themselves and they're not actually lending out what they actually have, they can produce almost a limitless um, amount of loans. And the only thing that restricts them is just people's ability to pay it back or the demand for the loans. And so in my opinion, that's why you haven't seen a lot of, well, I think you've seen more price inflation that they would lead on to uh, or that they'd admit because the CPI is cooked. But I think the reason why inflation is a heck of a lot higher is because people are just tapped out. The banks want to give them all these loans because they can create limitless money. But the people are like, I just can't afford, I can't afford to take out another loan because my income hasn't gone up in real terms and I just can't afford any more monthly payments. So I think the consumer's tapped out there. But so I think that they, my point is I think they use fractional reserve, but it's in a different way now that allows them to create exponentially more money than they created before. Interesting. So you mentioned uh, the whole repo market. So it sounds like it's re it's the repo market readjusted to where now the banks have absolute control and there's no limit to what they can do or attempt to do to, to, to save themselves. So what's your assessment on the repo market activity? Is this the true indicator that they've lost control and that they have to? So and also, is, is it QE? And so do we even need QE to be defined as QE, given the fact that they from what you the picture you painted, they can do whatever they want anyway? Do we even need to use words quantitative easing because they ultimately are doing something now? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, to your point, it all becomes kind of a shell game where it's, it's, just, it's just smoke and mirrors. But going back to the repo market, they've absolutely lost control of it. it, it they've got $300 billion going into the repo market nightly. Nightly. You know, if you, if you take the term repos and then what they commit to on, at the overnight desk. 300 billion. So if, if they had control of the repo market and, and people don't realize with that repo market rate, that affects the Fed funds rate. So, and, and that's one of the reasons why the Fed wants to get in there and control things because if that repo rate spikes up to 10%, then that's going to be, that's going to affect that Fed funds rate. That's so important to them. It's going to be harder for them to keep it within that, that range. So Yes, they, ab they absolutely have lost control of that. Now, th then the question becomes, well, why have they lost control of it? And I think the most likely answer is that one of the banks or many of the banks are having big problems. Now, whether that means they're insolvent or not, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. I, look at how hard it is for a bank bank to make money. Interest rates. How do, you, how do you make money? If you're a bank, you make money by borrowing short and lending long. How do you do that when the yield curve is flat? <laughs> you're screwed. So, it, you know, would it be any surprise if it came out that Deutsche Bank was, was, um, was bust? I don't think anyone would be shocked at all. And so is this the Fed going, are they losing control of the repo market because there's an entity out there that needs cash fast and no one's willing to lend it to them? I don't know. 
that might be, in my opinion, that's the most logical answer. But so, so that's kind of what's going on with the repo market. So is it QE? Well, absolutely it's QE. I don't think there's any way to even debate it. And it's just so blatantly obvious that the Fed is lying to us. Why are they lying to us? Because the economy is built on three things, asset prices, debt, and confidence. The Fed knows this. So Powell can't come out and just say, yep, we're all screwed. The repo market's done. We're bailing out Deutsche because that would collapse the economy because of that confidence component. So he's got to come out and say, oh, yeah, nothing to see here. Don't, don't worry about it. Remember when he first came out and he said it, that it was temporary, that this was, I think his exact words was this was a temporary glitch. Oh, really? Okay. Well, your balance sheet's expanded by 300 billion, and that was three months ago. Now you're committing to do repo transactions into 2020, and somehow this was a temporary glitch? And what, what boggles my mind is the market forgets about it. Like, like that, since it happened three months ago, it's out of the news cycle, and now all the bulls are just whistling by the graveyard and taking the S&P to all-time highs. It's, it's nuts. Ooh, George, that's uh, man, you've, you've, <laughs> that's a lot to take in. So as we draw towards the end of our discussion, I'm curious to get your thoughts on strategies, solutions, and uh, you know, what are some things that you would put out there as, as strategies that people can do heading into a new decade? What sure. are some things that you would recommend, based, opinion based, of course? Okay, well, my investment philosophy is pretty simple. I just try to buy what's cheap, sell what's expensive. I like to buy things that pay me to own them. And I like to have diversification within my portfolio. That means not only diversification in the normal sense, but currency risk and political risk. So that said, the only thing that's cheap right now in the United States, I'm assuming that someone's in the U.S. that's watching this, is a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. That's it. That's the only thing that's cheap. So since we know that's cheap, especially if we get inflation, because most people don't really understand this, but if you're paying 3% interest and inflation goes up to 5%, that's a transfer of wealth from the creditor to the borrower. So that's how you actually make money by with a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, because you're assuming you're basically shorting the dollar because you're assuming that inflation is going to go up because you're paying that loan back with cheaper dollars. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do you express that bet? So what I would do, I would go into rental properties, just very vanilla. And, you know, I like Kansas City. I've got quite a few rentals there. But in a market that's more linear, where it just doesn't fluctuate up and down, and where the price to income levels are within the realm of sanity, right? So, and I have videos all the time about the housing bubble. Well, yeah, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, all these places are in huge bubbles. But there are little pockets in the United States where you can still get good cash flow and prices are still under the cost of construction. So that, that's the way to get some great cash flow coming in. You limit your downside because you're buying under the cost of construction. You're going into a good area, but you're able to express that bet, which is the 30 year fixed rate mortgage. That would be number one. And then you're, so you're buying something that's cheap. You're paying, you're buying something that's paying you to own it. That would be a rental property. And then you're going into diversification. How do you do that? First and foremost, gold. Uh, you you want to have an insurance policy there, and there's no better insurance policy than gold. 
And then with your uh, political risk, I suggest getting a bank account, at least a bank account overseas. Even if you're an American, just set it up. You know, what's your downside there? And then if you're an American, you know, maybe get 10% of your portfolio outside of the United States and maybe a really good uh, dividend paying stock. Or of course, I like real estate or rental property. A lot of people say, well, I could never manage it. You know, how could I do that when I'm not living in that city, state or country? Listen, I've got rental properties in several different countries. A lot of my rental properties I haven't seen in years. It's just about getting a, getting a really, really good property manager. That does take work. But once you get that done, the, the rest is, is totally, totally doable where it becomes a very passive asset. So that's what I suggest because in an inflationary environment in the United States, you're going to do really, really well with that 30-year uh, fixed rate debt uh, or th let me 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Sometimes I just say debt and people think I'm talking about bonds. But a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, you're going to collect that cash flow. You're going to have that gold. And then if we get deflation, which is also a, a, a possibility, if you have that type of uh, portfolio, although it may l go down in nominal terms, I think it'll go down a lot less than everything else. Therefore, your purchasing power will still increase. Mm, interesting. George Gadman, it's been great having you on Rethinking a Dollar. Looking forward to continue to follow your work and to continue to learn more as I, you know, tap into your wealth of knowledge there. You're, you're a very uh, in-tune young man. So appreciate you taking time to educate the RTD audience. Can you point people back to your direction so they can be a blessing to you and your work? Sure, sure. Uh, just uh, George Gammon on Twitter. George, typical spelling, Gammon, G-A-M-M-O-N. If you want to send me a direct message or whatever, that's the best place to do it. Or if you want to check out some of my videos, it's all on topics just like this. It's at George Gammon. That's the name of my YouTube channel. Sounds good. Well, George, once again, it's been great having you on the channel. Looking forward to continuing to follow your work and have you back on in 2020 as things begin to really uh, rear their heads above water or ground. And we'll see where we're at at that point. But once again, thanks for joining us on Rethinking a Dollar. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for having me.